what a joy it is to gather on this Lord's Day. No, I'm not going to go till midnight, as Anan said, though I would if you let me. But as we prepare to hear God's word, let's pray for the preaching and pray for our hearts that God will help us to hear with faith. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege to gather this evening, this Lord's Day. We thank you that you have purchased us as your people. Lord, we confess there's no work we can do that can make us right before you. Lord, we are a sinful people in desperate need of your grace. Lord, we thank you for your provision of rest, that you've given us rest from our works through the, the finished work of Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection. Lord, we ask that your spirit now will come and give us new life. We ask that your spirit will raise the dead and cause the blind to see. We ask that you would revive our weary hearts and that you help us to behold the glory of our Savior. Lord, grant us rest in your presence as we come by faith and as we hear from your holy word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Over the past several months, there's been a lot of talk about days, weeks, weekends, and worship. On the first of this year, January 2022, the, the UAE officially changed the weekend from Friday, Saturday to Saturday, Sunday. Now, for a country like the UAE, this is a big deal. You see, for the majority of the Muslim population in this country, Fridays are considered a holy day of worship. Companies have been left scrambling to figure out how to incorporate this new weekend structure and how to accommodate the Juma Friday prayer. As one news article explains, the new weekend was a major talking point on social media, with one Twitter user complaining, it just feels so wrong. Muslims and secular corporations are not the only one these days talking about weekends, days, and worships. As I've mentioned already, the past 50 years, churches in the UAE have met on Fridays. We did this to coincide with the work week and to allow everyone to gather with the saints. But now the new weekend is on Saturday, Sunday, and churches all throughout the UAE are talking about days, weeks, and worship. Even now, as a church, we're trying to figure out how this will look like long-term. We know that some of our members still work on Sunday. So for now, we gather in the evening. But it doesn't feel very practical or normal, does it? Especially with this long drive, late hours. I know that many of you will work early tomorrow. So what are we to make of these changes? Is it right for us as Christians to reclaim Sunday as a day of gathering? What does the Bible teach us about days, about work, and about worship? Well, beloved, as a church, we are called to put on the mind of Christ. With so many opinions and news articles swirling around, we need the scriptures to inform our thinking about work, rest, and worship. So this evening, I want you to be well-equipped to find rest in your rock and redeemer. 
Above all, I want to stoke the fire of your joy as we think about how the resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus that was on the first day of the week, informs and empowers our worship. So we're going to do this quite simply by tracing the pattern of God's creation through the grand meta-narrative of Scripture. So we're going to look at creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Say that again. We're going to look at God's pattern of creation, what he has to say about days and the week and worship. And we're going to look at that through four points. Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Now let's think about that first point. Creation. God created the world so that you might enjoy his holy rest. Point number one. God created the world so you might enjoy his holy rest. First, we see this in God's pattern in creation. We see six days of work and seventh rest. You see, God patterned the seven days of creation ultimately to reveal the glory of his rest. So let's turn our Bibles to Genesis 1, verse 31. We're going to see how God completed his work in six days and how God set apart the seventh day as holy. Genesis 1, verse 31. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold... It was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So quite simply, we see after six days, God's work is very good. It's perfect. It's complete. After the six days of creation, there's nothing needed to be added or taken away. It is finished. Therefore, God rested, or that literally means ceased, from his work on the seventh day. But what did he do with the seventh day? How is the seventh day holy or special or unique? Well, when God rested on the seventh day, we know that he didn't rest because he needed a day off from work. No, he is the everlasting God. Rather, God reveals his rest as blessed and holy. The seventh day tells us that God's rest is blessed and holy. It's telling us something about who God is. So look at Genesis 2, verse 3. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So in six days, God created the world and said, it is done, it is finished, it is good, very good. Then on the seventh day, God stops from his work and he blesses the seventh day and sets it apart as holy. 
Blessing in the scriptures is a sign of God's favor, a sign of his life-giving presence. Holiness communicates the idea of being completely devoted to God and to God's glory. So when God rested on the seventh day, he set it apart as a day to enjoy his holy presence and divine glory. He set it a day to reveal his glory to all creation. It's a day to invite others to enjoy who God is in his holiness and in his glory. It's similar to like if the sheikh opened the doors of his palace and he invited you to eat at the king's table and enjoy the royal treatment of an honored guest. The God, the creator of all things, set apart this seventh day for holy communion and rest in his presence. And we see that this is an eternal rest. It never ends. So God patterned the seven days of creation. Six days work, it is done. Seventh day is holy and it is blessed. And he did this to reveal that the seventh day rest is the goal of creation or the capstone of creation. As scholar William Dumbrell explains, by the divine rest on the seventh day, the goal of creation is indicated. It is the call to man to begin history holding firmly to the view that the goal of creation and at the same time the beginning of all that follows is the event of God's Sabbath freedom, Sabbath rest, and Sabbath joy in which man too has been summoned to participate. So God created the world to reveal his glorious rest. He patterned the work week in such a way to say that in the six days of creation, he finished his work, it's finished, it's done. And on the seventh, he rested. He set it apart as holy for all of creation to enjoy that rest. But the question remains, how can we as God's creation enter into that rest? How can we enjoy his holy presence? Well, we see that God invites us to enjoy that holy rest through a covenant. He invites mankind to enjoy God's holy rest through a covenant. Now, you might be wondering, what is a covenant? Well, quite simply, as Peter Gentry explains, a covenant is a relationship characterized by faithfulness and loyalty and love. Faithfulness and loyalty and love. And we see in the creation story that God made a covenant with mankind. He sets Adam and Eve apart for a holy task and he provides his holy presence. So look back at me, look back with me at Genesis 1, verse 27 to 28. Here we'll hear the words of the covenant. What does this covenant relationship look like? What is his grounds? Genesis 1, verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. 
So we see in this account that God made man as the crown of his creation. He made a unique personal relationship covenant with Adam and Eve. And we see this by his making them in his image, in his likeness. They are like his son and daughter. And as sons and daughters of God, as heirs, God calls them to a holy task. He calls Adam to represent God's kingdom on earth. He also calls Adam to be our covenant representative or our covenant head. So God blesses Adam and Eve and he sets them apart for work. Just like God worked in six days and rested, he's now calling Adam and Eve to work and to rest. He's calling them to work and to rest. Well, we know that this is not the same type of work. God, when he worked, he did his creation work, right? But mankind is called to pattern their work after God. So what is the job description of Adam and Eve? Well, we saw it right there in verse 28. God commanded them to fill the earth and subdue it. To fill the earth and subdue it. That is their job description. That is their work. God called Adam and Eve to fill the earth with God-glorifying image bearers and to rule over the face of the earth. Through a right, right relationship with God, Adam and Eve were called to represent God's glory and God's presence, as we'll see in a moment, and to spread this to the ends of the earth. They're called to be rulers over all creation. So if you think your work is demanding, think about Adam and Eve. Think about their task to rule the world. How could they do such a task? Well, it's only attached to God's holy presence. God did not only give them a task to do and said, you go do it over there, but he actually gave them a place to do it. He gave them a place to do it. So if you're tracking so far, we've seen that God patterns the world in such a way to reveal his, glory, his glorious rest. Six days of creation, it is finished. Seventh day, God rests. It's holy. It's blessed. And now, through the covenant, he calls Adam and Eve to work like God and to enter into that covenant rest. Well, where does that happen? How does Adam and Eve enjoy that covenant rest? Well, we see in chapter 2 of Genesis that God created a holy space, a place where God and man could dwell in holy communion together. Listen to Genesis 2.15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. God put Adam in the confines of a garden. And Adam was called to do his work, his holy work, in the confines of this garden. He was called to work it, to keep it, to guard its borders. The way that he fills the earth and fills the earth with God's glory is by expanding the border of God's holy garden. New Testament scholar Greg Beale suggests that this garden is a garden sanctuary. It's a most holy place. 
It's a place set apart where God and man could dwell in holy communion, where man could enjoy God's holy rest. We see in Genesis 2 that the garden was a place where Adam and Eve walked face to face with God. This was a place where all of their needs were met. God told them they could have the fruit of every tree in the garden except for one. They had free access to the tree of life. And above all, they had free access to God's life-giving presence. This is a place where they could work without any hindrance and offer acceptable God, acceptable worship to God. It is in the Garden of Eden where Adam and Eve could enjoy God's presence, God's protection, and God's provision so that they could fulfill their work. It's a place where God, Adam and Eve enjoyed God's provision, protection, and presence so that they could fulfill their holy task. It's here in the garden where mankind meets with God and works like God. As Stephen Wellam explains, the seventh day rest speaks of God's entering into covenant enjoyment of his creation and our enjoyment of God as we carry out our creation mandate as servant kings. So, Let's conclude point one. God created the world so that we might enjoy his holy rest. He patterned the world, six days creation, seventh day rest, to reveal the glory of his rest. This is the end goal of all creation, that we might enjoy his holiness forever. That we might enjoy his presence forever. And he extends that rest to all mankind through a covenant. Adam and Eve are called to keep the covenant in obedience and by coming to the Garden of Eden in worship to God. Friends, this is what we were created for. God created you and I so that we might behold his glory, the glory of his rest and his presence, and enjoy him forever. This is what it means to worship God as God's covenant people to enjoy God's presence, and to offer sacrifices of praise through obedience. God is a source of eternal life, and all of our works are attached to him. There's nothing that we have that God has not provided for us. He has provided his gracious rest and provision. He has given you life. Just think about everything you own, everything you have. Think about your breath at this moment. It was an all gift from God. You can do nothing apart from him. All work, all work that is pleasing to the Lord is tied to God and his holy presence. But there's a problem. There's a problem, isn't there? It's our sin. Point number two is the fall. You were born in Adam's rebellion, cut off from God's rest. Point number two, you are born in Adam's rebellion, cut off from God's holy rest. So we see in the creation story that God gave Adam and Eve everything they needed to enjoy the rest of the garden. They were lacking nothing. They had unhindered access to God's glory and his presence. And they could access God's glory as long as they kept God's word. 
You see, God ruled over his creation and over Adam and Eve through his commands. And we see God only giving Adam and Eve one command, only one, in Genesis 2, verse 16. So look at Genesis 2, verse 16. He tells Adam, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. So God is telling Adam and Eve, If you obey my command, you will live. You will enjoy my blessing and my presence in this sacred space. But if you disobey, you'll be cursed and you will die. You'll be exiled from my presence forever. Unfortunately, in Genesis 3, we see that Adam and Eve broke God's covenant and plunged the entire world under a curse. They plunged the entire world under the curse of death. So let's look how, how, how did Adam and Eve break God's covenant? How did, God, how did Adam and Eve break God's covenant? Well, look at Genesis 3. Look at Genesis 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but, of the fruit of the, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was also with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So there's a lot, of, lot, lot of things here that we don't have time to cover, but I, I want you to notice a couple things. There are three things in, uh, to be exact. First, Adam, and Adam failed in his task to work and keep the garden. Adam failed in his task to work and keep the garden. Remember, God, Adam was called to work the garden, to guard it, protect its borders. Well, in verse 1, we see an intruder. We see the serpents. We see a foreign enemy. And what do we see Eve doing with the serpent? She welcomes in like he's a welcome guest. You see, the moment the serpent began to question God's word and speak blasphemy, Adam should have stomped on his head. But what did Adam do? He stood idly by. So first we see that Adam failed in his task to keep the garden. Second, we see that Adam and Eve exchanged God's truth for a lie. They exchanged God's truth for a lie. Remember, God warned Adam that the day you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. And yet here in this passage, we see the serpent questioning God's word and offering an alternative perspective. He says, you will not die. For God knows that you will eat of, when you eat of it, you, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, 
knowing good and evil. So the question is, who will they believe? God or the serpent? And unfortunately, Adam and Eve chose to listen to a talking beast. I just want you to think about how absurd that is. It's like one of your pastors referring you to the zoo for counsel or advice. But yet, they chose the serpent's lie over their creator's truth. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged God's truth for a wicked lie. Third, we see that they disobeyed God's word and broke covenant fellowship with God. Adam and Eve took and ate from the tree. They blatantly and willingly and knowingly rebelled against God's word. They chose themselves over and against God and his presence. They chose death over life. They chose cursing over blessing. They chose exile over God's presence. They did this Because they thought they could be like God. They thought they could know good and evil apart from God. My friends, this is the epitome of arrogance. This is the epitome of foolishness. And this is the epitome of self-destruction. So Adam and Eve disobeyed God's word. Well, what happens? What happens when they disobey God when they reject his sovereign rule, God does what he says. God does what he says. He cursed the world with death and exile. First, we see God cursed mankind's work. So you can see in Genesis 3, verse 16 to 19, that God cursed childbearing, so their call to be fruitful and multiply was now painful, and God cursed the ground. The call to keep the garden was now full of thorns and thistles. Their task of work was now riddled with pain, suffering, and ultimately, imminent death. Yes, delayed death, but imminent death. Everyone who's ever been born is destined to die. Second, we see that God exiles mankind from his holy rest. Remember, God created the world so that mankind might enjoy his holy rest, so they might enjoy fellowship with God, so they might enjoy all of his benefits, his life-giving presence, his protection, his joyful presence. And yet, because of sin, because God is holy and he cannot be in the presence of sin, he exiled man from the garden. You can see that in Genesis 3, verse 7 to 13. And 22 to 24. You see, Adam's sin not only brought physical death, but eternal separation from God. As soon as they ate from the tree, we see that Adam and Eve's eyes were opened. Yes, they were, but they saw their sin, the ugliness of their sin in the presence of a holy God. They were exposed, they were ashamed. Fellowship with God was now broken. So, what did they do? Try to cover their sin and shame. They hide from God's presence. And ultimately, we see that God exiles them from the garden forever. 
This, my friends, is paradise lost. Friends, every time you see suffering, pain, and death, you should be reminded of two things. First, it's a result of the curse. And two, you are a sinner, worthy of God's judgment. It's a reminder of the curse and a reminder of your sinful state. As our covenant head, Adam's disobedience brought the thorns of work and the curse of death to everyone. In Adam, all die. Each one of us are born in Adam's rebellion and we deserve death forever. We deserve God's judgment forever. And if you examine your life, you know that you're, no, you're not much different from Adam and Eve. You've chosen your ways against God's. You've claimed to be wise, but you've exchanged God's word and chased after the things that tickle your ears or things that you desire the most. You've become futile in your thinking and your foolish hearts were darkened. And in sin, you exchanged the glory of God for the worship of creation, of stuff. Ultimately, the worship of ourselves. Each one of us in this room was born spiritually dead in our sin, living in the passions of our flesh, and by nature are children of wrath like the rest of mankind. It's Ephesians 2, verse 1 to 3. Friends, this is the hopeless state of man if we're left in our sin, exiled from God's presence forever. You know that's what hell is. Hell is being exiled from God's presence forever. But God, being rich in mercy, remained faithful to his covenant, and he promised redemption. So point number three, redemption. God promises rest through the work of Jesus Christ. God promised rest through the work of Jesus Christ. Adam and Eve's rebellion deserved immediate and everlasting death. God said, the day that you eat of that tree, you will surely die. God should have wiped humanity out right then and there. But he doesn't. Though death is coming, we see that God delays physical death. In fact, we see that Adam lived for over 900 years. Why does God allow man to live? Because this was all according to God's sovereign plan. He wasn't surprised by their sin. He knew that they would reject his word and be exiled from his presence. You see, before the foundations of the world, God purposed, God planned, God designed to show the glory of his grace by offering redemption to hellbound sinners like you and me. So God delayed Adam and Eve's death and gave them a gracious promise of redemption in Genesis 3, 15. Look at Genesis 3, verse 15. Speaking to the serpent, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your heel and you shall bruise his head. Sorry, you, you shall bruise his... Let, let me say that again. Genesis 3, 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your he head and you shall bruise his heel. 
though they deserve death, God promised an offspring. It's life. He promised a baby. But not just any offspring. He promised a son who will crush the head of the serpent with a fatal blow. You see, the seed of the woman will destroy the works of the devil and restore all that was lost in Eden. This seed, we see, will atone for man's sin. He will destroy death and he'll bring God's people back to God's rest. God here is promising the reverse of the curse, the reverse of all, of all that was lost. It's like he's promising a resurrection, a new creation. But we see that this redemption will come at a price. We even see that in the the creation narrative. We see that the seed of the woman will suffer and bleed when he crushes the serpent's head. We get a foretaste of this when in order to cover Adam and Eve's sin, there needed to be atonement. So God slaughtered an animal and covered Adam and Eve and clothed them. And we see that Adam and Adam believes God's promise and he responds in faith. He calls wife, though they deserve death and though they will die, he calls Eve the mother of all living. He trusts in God's promise that a son will come to bring a resurrection. Now, as redemption history unfolds, we see that this covenant promise in Genesis 3.15 is handed down throughout generations. We see that God establishes this promise with Noah, with Abraham, with Israel, and David. And with each covenant, we see that God progressively reveals how he'll fulfill his promise in Genesis 3.15. For instance, think about God's covenant with Abraham. God called Abraham. God promised Abraham land, nation, and blessing. We see that the promised seed of the woman will be a son of Abraham. Later we'll see it's a son of David. God's blessing will come to everyone who trusts in this offspring. They will enjoy God's rest in the promised land where God will once again dwell with his people. Now God passed this promise to Abraham down to Isaac and Jacob, who he renamed Israel. So think about God's covenant with Israel at Mount Sinai. Remember, Israel sojourned in Egypt and were forced into slavery. But what does God do? He remembers his covenant promise, and he redeems Israel from their slavery at the Exodus. God struck the Egyptians and provided a Passover lamb to cover for their sin. Through judgment, God brought his people safely to Mount Sinai, where he spoke his covenant word to them. You see, in the law, God revealed his holy character and provided new provision for worship to take account for sin. He gave provision for worship to account for sin. Now, what's so amazing is at the heart of the Ten Commandments, though we find God recalling the pattern of creation from Genesis 1. Remember when we talked about the pattern of creation? Six days work, seventh day rest. Well, God reminds us of this pattern and reestablishes pattern for Israelite worship. So turn with me to Exodus 20, verse 8. Exodus 20, 
verse 8. Listen to the fourth commandment, which we see later on in Exodus 31, is the greatest commandment. He says, of all else, you shall keep my Sabbath rest. Listen to Exodus 20, verse 8. God says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord, your God. On it you shall do no work. You or your son or your daughter, your male servants, your female servants, or your livestock, or the sojourn who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now he's talking about the Sabbath, rest. The pattern of creation was now the pattern of worship. Six days work in covenant relationship to God. Seventh, rest. The seventh was set apart as a day to remember God's deliverance from Egypt. It was a day to trust in God's word. It was a day to stop your work and gather for corporate worship. Here God is reinstituting a new Eden in a promised land where God's people can now enjoy his holy rest. We see that God provides the tabernacle so that now sinful humanity can access God's presence. He provides a mediation, a sacrificial system of priests and sacrifices. Animals were slaughtered So that mankind can now dwell with God. As Hebrews 9.21 explains, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So just like the Garden of Eden, God is promising everlasting rest to his people. They obey his word. They work six days unto the Lord and enjoy his Sabbath rest. God's covenant word is governing and informing how they should relate to God, relate to one another, and offer worship both throughout the week and on the Sabbath. God is reinstituting the Garden of Eden. It's another garden where God's presence, there's a land where God's presence can dwell with God's people. But there's a problem. Even after Israel entered the promised land, we see that they failed to enter God's rest. They did not keep God's word. They profaned God's Sabbath and were eventually exiled for their sin, just like Adam and Eve. You see, you can take the people out of Egypt, but you cannot take Egypt out of the people. You can take the people out of Egypt, but you cannot take Egypt out of the people. The problem is with man's heart, man's sinful, wicked, rebellious heart. The only way you or I can enjoy God's presence, his holy rest, is if we are born again, if we are given a new heart. So God makes a way to offer this salvation rest 
in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Everyone from Adam to Abraham to Israel and David have failed to keep God's covenant. They failed to enjoy God's rest because of their sin. In fact, the scriptures tell us that no one is righteous. No, not one. All have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. You see, our righteous deeds, all your good works, all your labors, everything you bring by your hands is stained by sin. Your works are filthy rags before God. There is nothing you can do to atone for your sin and to make you or bring you back to God. There's nothing you can do to atone for your sin or bring you back to God. So, what does God do? We need someone outside of ourselves. We need an alien righteousness. So when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son. He was born of woman. He was born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. Jesus Christ came to obey God's word in every way that you and I have failed. He came to to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law so that he might offer his righteous life as payment for our sin. Jesus Christ came to earth with a single-minded devotion to accomplish his work, his work of redemption, his work of salvation, his work of paying for your sins on the cross. Jesus Christ came to be sin so that you and I, by faith, might become the very righteousness of God. And Jesus continued to obey his Father until that work of redemption was finished, was complete. He was beaten. He was stripped naked. And he was put on a cross to bear your iniquity. And before he took his last breath, we see that he was exiled by God the Father when he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus Christ bore the eternal wrath, the judgment for your sin. And with his dying breath, he cried out, It is finished. Jesus finished his work of redemption. It is complete. Complete atonement has been paid for. There's nothing that can take away from it or add to it. It is sufficient. It is enough. And on that Sabbath day, that Saturday, Jesus Christ's body laid in the tomb. He rested from his atoning work. But we see that his work was not finished. You see, he paid the penalty for our sin. But on the eighth day of the week, or the first day of the week, that's Sunday, Jesus Christ conquered our sin and death when he rose from the dead. On Sunday, Jesus Christ inaugurated a new creation. You see, the Apostle Paul says that Jesus Christ is the firstborn of the new creation through his resurrection. 
Jesus Christ conquered sin, conquered death. He ascended on high. He ascended back to God's presence in heaven. And he poured out the Spirit to all who trust in him. Through the new covenant of his blood, Jesus Christ crushed the one who has the power of death. And he delivered a new exodus to a new promised land, a greater land, the land in heaven where you can enjoy God's presence forever. You see, God's rest is not wrapped up in a day. It's wrapped up in a person. God's rest is found in Jesus Christ and in Christ alone. And we see this most clearly in the book of Hebrews. So turn with me to Hebrews 3, verse 12. Hebrews 3, Verse 12. The author is writing to Christians. Now let's, let's listen to the flow of his argument. He says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So if you hold your confidence to the end, you share in Christ's rest and resurrection. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore my rest, wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has said somewhere, spoken of the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he says, they shall not enter my rest. Since, therefore, it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again, he appoints a certain day. Friends, that's today. Saying through David so long ago, so, so long afterwards, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them a rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his work as God did. So friends, the way that you enter this rest is not through disobedience, it's not through lack of faith, but by trusting in Christ. He has offered this rest to everyone who turns from their sins and trusts in him. Friends, 
You only deserve God's judgment in hell forever. You deserve to be exiled from his presence for all of eternity. Anything you enjoy in life, anything good or pleasing or acceptable, things that you like, all come from God. He is a source of life. And if you do not trust in Christ, you will be cut off from the source of life for all eternity. You deserve God's judgment, but he offers new life. Friends, you must be born again. You need a new heart. You need God to raise you from the dead. You need to repent of your sins and receive the offering of eternal and lasting and everlasting rest. My friends, if you're not a Christian, you you are not promised tomorrow. Today is the day of salvation. Repent of your sin and trust in Christ. Now, our fourth point, due to time we're going to have to not cover very much, fourth point is consummation. That God has provided you rest as we wait for final rest. Now, what I want to note here is that those who have trusted in Christ live in this period of already but not yet. Already but not yet. You are raised in Christ spiritually, and one day you'll be raised physically. So how does the resurrection, as we conclude, inform and empower corporate worship? Well, first, we see that the local church is the assembly of God's new creation. Friends, you do not need to go to Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark to see heaven on earth. Heaven on earth is in this assembly. Later tonight, go to Hebrews 12, verse 18 to 25. You'll see that it is here, the assembly of the firstborn. This is where we gather in God's presence, God's holy presence that is in heaven. And Jesus, our resurrected Lord, speaks to us. Every time we open the scriptures, we are listening to the words of our risen King. Listen to them and obey them. Friends, this is the assembly where heaven meets earth. Second, we center our worship on the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The passage that Chris read earlier shows us that all the scriptures, all the prophets, all the law point to the death and resurrection of Christ. His resurrection from the dead, his atoning sacrifice is the center of our worship. Jesus is the firstborn of creation. He is the head of the church. So all we do must be centered on him. When we gather, we come to listen to his word and to offer worship to him. Third, we see that we gather in holy communion with God and with one another. We gather in holy communion with God and with one another. We offer worship. We sing praise to God. We enjoy his holy presence. God's presence among us is the source of our true unity as a church. We're called now to love one another as Christ first loved us. We come here in this gathering to rest. Friends, are you tired? Are you weary? Are you fighting sin? Well, guess what? You're in the right place. All he requires 
is that you feel your need for him. Jesus Christ completed it all. He paid it all. Payment has been made. He conquered. He rose. And now his life-giving word can cause the most weary soul to rejoice with joy. Finally, we see that the resurrection empowers our worship and our hope. Friends, if you are in Christ, you have the life-giving spirit dwelling in you. God has made his residence in you. He's given you the spirit that rose Christ from the dead. He's given you everything you need for life and godliness. He's given you the ability to walk in obedience. He's given you the ability to obey his commands and to worship him with your life. Later, I encourage you to go to Colossians 3, verse 1 to 10. See how we put off our old ways of thinking and we put on the mind of Christ. Last, we see that the resurrection empowers our hope. Friends, a day is coming when your weary, weak bodies will be raised from the dead just like Jesus Christ. If you're sick, if you're feeling achy, if you're tired, if you're barely hanging on, then listen to Paul's words for you. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up by victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, in light of the coming resurrection to come, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. For all of us in Christ, there's a day coming where we will see God face to face and we will enjoy his holy presence forever. Live in light of that day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the finished work of Christ. We thank you that though he died, yet he lives. Lord, we thank you that he is our Lord and our King we thank you for the holy communion and the rest that we enjoy as your people. Lord, we ask that you'd help us by faith to enter into this rest, to trust in your good promises, and to love one another as you have first loved us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.